Good morning, everyone. I thought there was going to be a little video to start with, but obviously that doesn't matter. Not the not, the not qualified one. It was just on the thing. Um, just in case you've got little children here today, it's going to be on JL, and there's a little bit about murder, so it could be quite graphic. But I didn't bring my hammer, and I didn't bring my tent peg, and I didn't bring my pumpkin that I was going to bring, so it won't be as graphic as it was going to be. <laughs> Um, oh, thank you. Which one is it? The, the big one. Right. Um, so, what's the purpose? We had the song at the very beginning, um, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you believe that he came down from heaven, you believe that he lived on this earth in human form. You believe that he died. And you believe that he rose again. And you believe that he sits on the right hand of God. You've received the Holy Spirit and you've been baptised. But now what? What's your purpose? What happens after all that? For some people, they get called to the mission field. And some people are called to theology college and carry on and be pastors. But if that's not you, what then? What's your purpose on this earth? So let's take a look at Judges. Judges chapter 4, verses 1 to 23. I'm going to talk about J.L., she a saint or was she a sinner? And I don't know whether you've read the story, but we'll be reading it in a few minutes. But one commentary I read said this, and I quote, JL was not a crude or coarse woman or a tiger of a woman. Lacking courage, she dare not attack Caesarea fairly. She resorted to trickery, for although she met Cicero with a beaming face, there was murder in her heart, and she killed him by foul and reprehensible means. Had Cicero attempted to rape her, and in defense of her honor she had killed him, that would be, have been another matter, but to kill him as an assassin kills a victim was something different. But let me show you another point of view. And I will leave it to you to draw your own conclusions. Jael is only featured in a few verses in the Bible, in the book of Judges, but she plays a dramatic role. Surrounding her is a web of intrigue, mystery, power, control, murder, deceit, friendship, betrayal and strategy. But let me give you a bit of background. JL was brought up in the harsh, harsh desert environment. She was a Bedouin. The Bedouins had to adapt their shelter because the weather conditions change and change quite dramatically. And so they had tents. And they could easily erect and dismantle these tents and transport them 
And for the tents, they joined together long strips of camel hair and woven vegetable fibers to construct the sides for their tents. And these tents were held up with poles and fastened with guy ropes. And the tents could be, the sides could be rolled up or let down just to let breeze blow through or stop the coal coming in. So these tents provided warmth and shelter from the fiercest sun and protection from the heaviest rain. Because when the fibers got wet, they expanded and made the tents all waterproof. And traditionally in the Bedouin tribes, the men chose the camping site. And usually it was sort of with a rock protection so, so that the rock could protect them from the wind or the sun could heat the rock and make it warm at night. And the women were the ones that erected the tents. They drove in the tent pegs. The women made the, the rooms homely. They had carpets and cushions, but no other furniture. <clears throat> and inside the tents, they're dark and they're cool. And the Bedouin tent is divided into sections. And these are divided by woven panels like curtains. One section is, divide, is for the men, solely for the men. And one section is for the women, for cooking, receiving female guests, and is the place of the woman, the Maharara. And it is in this place where J.L. lived and Caesar finally met his match. So let's turn to slide, uh, to slide, <laughs> to Judges 4, verses 21 to 23. After Ehud's death, the Israelites again did evil in the Lord's sight. So the Lord turned them over to King Jabin of Hazor, a Canaanite king. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harasheth, Hagoyim. Sisera had about 900 chariots, ruthlessly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, and then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help. And this is quite different because it's the only time in Israelite history where the Israelites were attacked from inside their own nation. Because years before, when um, the Israelites had attacked Canaan, they were told by God to wipe out the Canaanites, destroy them, don't leave any. But that didn't happen. And so the enemies of Israel came from within their own camp. There were a few Canaanites dotted here and there and everywhere. And these Canaanites regrouped and they were attempting to restore their lost power. And if the Israelites had obeyed God fully in the first place, all the Canaanites would have been driven out of the land and this incident wouldn't have happened. But it did. And it happens quite often when we don't listen to what God has to say to us, there are consequences. 
So verse 4. Deborah, the wife of Lapidoth, was a prophet who was judging Israel at that time. She would sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites would go to her for judgment. One day she sent for Barak, son of Abu Abinoam, who lived in Kadesh in the land of Naphtali. She said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Call out 10,000 warriors from the tribes of Naphtali and Zebulun at Mount Tabor, and I will call out Sisera, commander of Jabin's army, along with his chariots and warriors to the Kishon River. There I will give you victory over him. And Barak told her, I will go with you, but only if you go with me. Now, for Deborah to say, what did she say? She sent for Barak, and she said, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you. Barak already had had that. He knew, and she was, because she was a prophet, she was confirming what he already knew. So he knew that he was to go and attack, and he wasn't opposed to it, but he didn't want to do it on his own. And because he said to Deborah, I will go, but only if you go with me, it's sort of saying that he trusted human strength rather than God's. And a person of real faith steps out at God's command. So his faith was in humans, not so much in God, even though he knew very well what God had commanded. So Deborah says, very well, she replied, I will go with you, but you will receive no honor in this venture, for the Lord's victory over Sisera will be at the hands of a woman. So Deborah went, to, went with Barak to Kadesh. And at this point in the story, you almost figure that Deborah will be the one that, is, that holds, claims the victory. But it's not to be. And when the battle is in God's hands, so is the victory. Have you got a battle in your life? Give it to God. For wherever, whatever it is, God will be with you. At Kadesh, Barak called together the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 warriors went up with him, and Deborah also went with him. Now Heber the Kenite, a descendant of Moses' brother-in-law, Hobab, had moved away from the other members of his tribe and pitched his tent by the oak of Zananim near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, he called for all 900 of his iron chariots and all of his warriors, and they marched from Harasheth Haggaiim to the Kishon River. Then Deborah said to Barak, Get ready. This is the day the Lord will give you victory over Sisera, for the Lord is marching ahead of you. So Barak led his 10,000 warriors down the slopes of the Tabor Mount, Mount Tabor into battle. When Barak attacked, 
the Lord threw Sisera and all his chariots and warriors into a panic. Sisera leapt down from his chariot and escaped on foot. Then Barak chased the chariots and the enemy of the army all the way to Harosheth Hagiom, killing all of Sisera's warriors. Not a single one was left alive. And Deborah's poem in chapter 5, the next chapter over, gives a clue to how that victory happened. There was a cloud burst, and it changed the Kishon into a river into a raging torrent. And the iron chariots were too heavy, and they, they got bogged down in the mud, so they were absolutely useless to the Canaanites. And that is how the victory happened. And God had already planned that victory, but Barak didn't know it. And because he didn't trust God, things just changed. And things happen God's way. And whether we like it or not, they're going to happen. And God has his plan and God has his purpose. But let's carry on and see what happened next. Verse 17. Meanwhile, Sisera ran to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because Heber's family was on friendly terms with King Jabin of Hazer. Now, Heber was Jael's husband. And the Kenites, as it said further back, were long-time allies of Israel. But for some reason... And we don't know the reason. Heber decided to remain neutral. And it may be because that Jabin's army looked like it would overpower the Israelites and he wanted to be on the, the right side. But although Heber threw his lot in with um, Sisera and King Jabin, Jael did not. She was faithful to the Israelites. But nobody knew that at that time. So verse 18, let's see what's going to happen next. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Come into my tent, sir. Come in. Don't be afraid. So he went into her tent and she covered him with a blanket. And it's up until this point that Jael is a regular woman. And then God activated her purpose. And you can't fulfill the purpose of God without the Holy Spirit of God and without the power of God. Jael treated Sisera with hospitality. And he made her feel like he had no need to be afraid because the Bedouin people were renowned for their hospitality. Guests and fellow travellers were always welcome in a Bedouin tent. And it's become one of the best-known characteristics of the Bedouin tribes, that they are hospitable. So, Caesarea was lulled into a false sense of security. He was comfortable, because he thought he was in neutral territory. And so he let his guard down. He was in Jael's tent, the Maharama, the place of women. 
No man was allowed in the Maharama. So who would think to look for him there? And so he felt very comfortable. And for the first time in a few weeks or however long it had taken, he felt quite relaxed. Verse 19. Please give me some water, he said. I'm thirsty. So she gave him some milk from a leather bag and covered him again. Now, he asked for water. She gave him milk. But I think JL knew when you go to bed sometimes at night, you might have a milky drink or a milky Milo or whatever because milk has a sophoric effect and it can make you feel nice and drowsy. It relaxes you. And combined with the exhaustion that Cicero would have been feeling and the milk to bring on his drowsiness, she bought him a full fat bowl of milk to help induce his sleep. And he said to her, stand at the door of the tent, he told her. If anybody comes and asks if there is anyone here, say no. But Sisera fell asleep from exhaustion. Jael crept quietly up to him with a hammer and a tent peg in her hand. Then she drove the tent pegs through his temple and into the ground, and so he died. It's quite gory. Jael saw her opportunity and she acted upon it. When Barak came looking for Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and she said, Come and I will show you the man you are looking for. So he followed her into the tent and found Sisera lying there dead with the tent pegs through his temple. So on that day, Israel saw God defeat Jabin, the, king, the Canaanite king. And from that time on, Israel became stronger and stronger against King Jabin until they finally destroyed him. So what can we learn about this story? What can we learn about... Sorry, I just saw something up on there that didn't quite fit with my notes. What can we learn about this story of J.L.? First of all, we need to act on the opportunities that God puts in front of him. JL's actions did not make sense in the moment. To take a refugee into her tent, a male at that, to show him hospitality and make him feel safe, and then kill him, that was an act of gruesome treachery. We don't know if JL originally intended to kill Sisera. Maybe she just was trying to buy time so that anyone pursuing him could have time to catch up. And maybe when she didn't see anybody chasing after him, maybe that's when the decision was made. We don't know. It doesn't give us any of these details. But what is important is when that time came to make the decision, she did not hesitate. Soon, Sisera would be awake again. And she took the opportunity to, to do what God was asking her to do. 
she had to ignore all the fear, all the what-ifs. And when the Holy Spirit asks us to do something, we don't usually have a long time to think. Situations are ever-changing. And opportunities pass by so quickly. Just think of that person that you meet on the street sometimes. And you might feel the Holy Spirit prompting you to say something to him or her. And then you say goodbye and they're gone. And you're thinking, oh, I should have said something. Why didn't I say something? And you've missed your opportunity. When the Holy Spirit prompts you, have courage. Be brave. Take the opportunity because God is there. He's there in every victory. And so we need to decide in our hearts that when the time comes, we will say yes to whatever it is God's asking us to do. So the second thing we can learn is that we need to use the tools we've been given. Under the circumstances, JL had no better tool than the tent peg. Since this was the woman's tent, there were no weapons nearby. And not only that, every time they moved that tent, she had a bit more practice with that tent peg. So she knew how to use that tool. She was skilled. I mean, I've been camping, and sometimes you go camping and you, put your, you get your tent peg, your little tent peg, your little metal tent peg, and you start hammering it in. Hammering, hammering it in. And Keith says, I always, what is it, throttle the hammer, because I hold it, strangle it, because I hold it too close, instead of holding it at the end and hitting. But I'm always afraid of maybe hitting my fingers, and it's like, oh. But JL had a, about a foot-long tent peg, made of wood about inch in diameter with a hook on the end. And she had a maul, and she knew how to use that maul. And it was bang, and it was bang. There was no little knockings. And so she knew that when this opportunity arose, that she had to use the resources that were given to her. And she couldn't just go up to Sisera in, in his tent as he's lying down and place the thing over his temple, which is there, by the way, and tap on it, because that would have woken him up and given the game away. So she had one opportunity and one opportunity only. She had to have that tent peg there, just above his head, so that he didn't know it was there. And then she had to take that maul, and she had to bang it. Now, skulls are bony. They're not, I mean, this is the easiest place probably to go through your skull, but it is still bony. And it had to go through there and out the other side and into the ground. She had to make sure he was dead, not getting up again, finished. So it was one hit. God equipped her for that one time in her life, that one purpose, just like he equipped Esther when Mordecai said, maybe you were called for such a time as this. What's your purpose in this life? JL used the resources that God had given her. 
She didn't take a moment to think about it. She didn't say, oh, if only I had a sword. God equips each and every one of us. Are you artistic? Maybe your art is the very thing that is your purpose in this life. Are you a good speaker? Maybe your voice is the very thing that is the purpose God has for you. So even when we don't feel equipped and skilled or prepared, God ensures for his sake that he will get the glory. And it may not look the way we would imagine it to look, but we can trust in God that he will equip us to do the right thing. God is sovereign and we can trust him to give us competence. And 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 5 to 6 says, not that we are competent in ourselves to claim anything for ourselves, but our competence comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And there's another lesson that we can learn. Sometimes things are more important. There are sometimes things more important than following rules. Sisera's murder was an act of treachery because the Bedouin, as I've said before, were hospitable hospitable people. So it went against everything her culture of her culture. But she still said yes to the prodding of God. And we only have to look through Jesus' life to read stories of broken rules. And don't get me wrong, Jesus didn't break rules to be rude or needlessly provoke people. He always did it for the sake of challenging rationally abusive behavior or feeling or the freeing of the oppressed. Think about what he did. He denounced religious rulers for heaping burdens on people. For the Pharisees that tried to make people do this and do that. And Jesus told them off about that. Jesus touched lepers and healed them. Even though in that day, lepers were unclean. They were meant to be outside the city. They were meant to ring bells if you ever came near them. Jesus went up to them and touched them. He broke all the rules. Jesus healed on the Sabbath day. No work was to be done on the Sabbath. Jesus healed and that was considered work. So let's follow Jesus' example and not get caught up in the religious rules or the cultural rules or so caught up that we miss the calling of God and the challenge of God in this oppressive world. And another lesson we can learn, lesson four. 
Our highest motive should be honouring God, not people. I don't think JL killed Sisera out of revenge or personal anger. Because the Kenites, the tribe that she came from, were peace-loving people. So if anything, she should have been an ally to Sisera, especially as her husband was an ally. But everything we do in this world should be for the sake of honouring and bringing glory to God. And 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us, 31 tells us, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And eating and drinking are pretty insignificant things. So how much more should we glorify God with our lives? And the fifth and final thing we can learn from JL's story is a metaphor on how we should fight our spiritual battles. Today, our battles aren't against people. It's against principalities and it's against powers. Just like Ephesians 6.12 puts it, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And the biggest battle we will fight in this life is sin. Charles Spurgeon once gave a sermon where he compared Sisera to sin. And he asserted that we should not be content to simply see our sins fleeing, just as Caesar was fleeing from us. We should be ready to pursue them and then to drive them into the ground dead with a nail the way J.L. did. And the only one who can help us do that is Jesus. And we should be constantly ready to run to him to confess our sins to him and to bask in the victory of the cross because that's what he did. When he died on the cross, he nailed our sins to that cross. He's the one that gives us life. He's the one that cancels our debt. And he is the one that nailed our sins to that cross once and for all. JL had her priorities straight. She prioritized God. And we need to prioritize his heavenly rule over our earthly religious rules. We need to prioritize his voice over what we think is right. We need to prioritize his glory and his competence over our own. JL was a woman who understood this. She only gets a few lines in scripture, but we have so much to learn from her. She had found her purpose. She didn't go looking for it. It came to her. And she took the opportunity when it, when it arose and Israel claimed the victory. How different things would look if we seized opportunities when they came to us and used our resources 
and freed the oppressed and honoured God and fought like JL. So I ask you one more time, JL, saint or sinner, I leave it up to you to make your decision. But there's just one more thing. There's a video I'd like you to watch before we close in prayer. And I hope this just sort of helps you think about whether you're qualified or not. So the other day I got a message on Facebook that said, John, I love the message of your videos, but not if it's coming from you. There are choices you've made in your past that render you not qualified to spread such a message. And for me, that was hard to hear because the hypocritical Christian is something I fear. To be put in a category like that, I, I could think of nothing worse. So maybe there's something I should have said first. You see, I can't and won't and don't claim to be perfect. In fact, most times I'm not even good. I'll take responsibility for the mistakes I've made and the hurts I've caused. I got more than I probably should. But would God use that against me? Making good coming from my life impossible? Forgives me but refuses to use me? I don't believe in that gospel. I believe in the God of Moses. Moses was an orphan and a murderer with a stutter and a price on his head. Yet God chose this killer to be a fulfiller, performing miracles, leading his people, and making rivers flow red. I believe in the God of David. David, the shepherd boy who turned into a king, a terrible father and an adulterer from the start. Yet even with wrongdoings and iniquity, we remember him as the man after God's own heart. Mary Magdalene was a prostitute, living a life without direction. Matthew was a tax collector, the lowest of the low, yet they both walked and talked and witnessed Christ's perfection. Did God choose the Pharisees, the self-righteous and pompous full of laws and pretension, or did he choose cowardly Peter and persecuting Paul to spread the message of Christ's redemption? All these heroes in the Bible, not a one of them was likely. Leaning not on themselves, they leaned on God. And you know what God is? He is mighty. So can God use me? A broken, steaming mess. And can God use him or her or you? I'm here to tell you right now that the answer is yes. God can and will use anybody, even if you only go to church on Christmas. Does he only speak through the preacher? No, God is in a different business because believing in the Lord isn't living a perfect Walgreens life, always doing right. It's letting his light shine from within and letting his word be your tutor. He'll take your broken past, helping you step in to a more hopeful future because it wasn't for perfection that Jesus died on that cross. It was for the unhealthy so the sick could serve the sick and seek and save the lost. Because in the end, these words and these lights and these cameras and this video, it's not about me. It's about God. And with God, it's never about who you were but about who you will be. It's God's story for the world, and we're just playing our parts. 
So if you're out there feeling not qualified, that's great. Because not qualified is where he starts. So if you're feeling not qualified, that's great. Because that's where God starts. So I'd just like to close in a quick prayer. Lord, grant us the wisdom to use what you provide and to seize the